This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Welcome to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Cheryl Kuhlman. And I'm Sandy Hunt. Dollars and Change is here every Thursday from 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern, 5 to 6 p.m. Pacific, and then it's replayed during the week and available on the Sirius XM app. We're looking forward to our show today. We've got two guests bringing different perspectives on on, uh, the world and the impact that they're going to make. The first guest who will join us in a moment is Naran Khan, who's the director of the president's office at the Ford Foundation. And Ford Foundation is doing some really very interesting things. So this will be a very interesting conversation for people who want to know about how foundations really are thinking differently about the, the role they can play in making impact happen. Then in the second half of the program, we will have president and chief executive officer at the IDP Foundation, Irene Pritzker. So that'll be another t- sort of talk about a different size foundation, but with a different focus, but sort of seeing, again, how do you use your money to make the world a better place? So let's now welcome our first guest, Naran Khan, director of the president's office at the Ford Foundation. Welcome to Dollars and Change. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, we're delighted. We're delighted. We've, uh, we're big fans of the Ford Foundation, so we're always like, great to glad to be a, have a chance to learn more about the foundation and to uh, highlight and profile some of the great work that you're doing. So why don't you start off broadly by talking, what is, what is the Ford Foundation? What's your focus? Sure. Well, we're, uh, you know, we're an endowed foundation. Um, we have a $13 billion endowment. And, and repeat that, please, again. <laughs> <laughs> sure. We're an endowed foundation. We have a $13 billion endowment. Uh, That's a good size in- endowment. It's, it's not bad, um, and we uh, we give away six hundred million dollars a year in grant making um, to organizations that uh, fight inequality. Um, we've been around for about eighty years, and we do work both in the U.S. and in ten regions outside of the U.S. Uh, in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. So, uh, so really, inequality is our focus. We're a social justice foundation focused on inequality. And I think it would be helpful to give our listeners some context. I'm assuming everyone knows the Ford name. <laughs> you know, the Ford Foundation was uh, created in 1936 by Edsel and Henry Ford. Tell us how, you know, why this is the focus now. Was this their focus then? How has it evolved? Sure. Well, the the focus is, has, you know, evolved over the years reflecting um, what what the world has needed or what folks thought the world needed. Um, Initially, there was a lot of work on um, poverty alleviation and development. Um, As those fields grew and developed, um, you know, we moved on to other things. But I think something that we're really proud of is that we, uh, you know, we often helped seed um, ideas or movements um, that were adopted more broadly. And then we were able to take on other issues um, kind of in their early stages. And then again, other funders moved in, the landscape develop, 
develops, um, new organizations develop around those priorities. And so, you know, uh, so, so, you know, our work has evolved, but I would say um, it, we always try to stay relevant to the times that we're in and respond to the problems that uh, the world experiences in this moment. And so you know, there's a number of program areas that we have now that would not have been relevant then. We have a program called, you know, Technology and Society. And I guess Technology and Society was important then, but though, you know, the ways in which we think about the internet and policy and public interest technology wouldn't necessarily have been relevant then. So sure. the technology oh. was the Ford factory <laughs> floor. Right, exactly. Right. <laughs> I mean, we continue to think about labor. We have a program called the Future of Workers, um, thinking about you know in many spaces. People talk about the future of work, but what does that mean for labor, for the gig economy, and for the actual people doing the work? And that's something so, we'll want to probe a little bit because I think that's a, a kind of fascinating area. So be, be prepared to talk about that later. Great. Go ahead. <laughs> it's nascent here, but we're really proud of, um, of what we're starting to do. Fabulous. So I think that we could take this conversation in a lot of directions because with $12.4 billion to spend, mm -hmm. you guys are doing a lot with it. Um, let's dig deep on a couple program areas and let's start. Um, you guys do a lot of work at with disability inclusion. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit how that became a primary area of focus under your sort of broader mission statement. Well, our work on disability uh, inclusion and justice is something I'm incredibly proud of. Uh, in 2015, when we announced our focus on inequality, we heard from a lot of activists who responded to some materials that we put out. One of the materials we put out was an analysis of inequality that included things that we identified as drivers of inequality. Um, and one of the drivers was persistent prejudice and discrimination. And we enumerated and named things like race, caste, class, um, and other intersections of identity. But we didn't say anything about disability. Oh, and there, yeah. you know, a billion disabled people in the world. And we did not address that at all. And some really amazing, savvy activists uh, brought that to our attention pretty quickly. Uh, and so, you know, in early meetings, you know, these things always start off as courtesy meetings. You meet with people who raise issues and you listen to what they have to say. It became so clear that it was more than just a courtesy, that the issues that they were raising about the inequality, the really profound and deep inequality experienced by people with disabilities around the world was something we had to grapple with. We couldn't just say, oh, well, in doing the work that we do, we touch disabled people. If we didn't do it intentionally with some purpose and focus and some special accommodations and analyses, we wouldn't we wouldn't reach our goal of addressing this, addressing the broader inequality crisis. So over the course of 2016 and 2017, we did a lot of internal learning. We met with, you know, almost like 100 activists. Um, and one of the things I really respect about my boss, Darren Walker, the president of the foundation, his approach is that we didn't wait till the end of all of that consultation and all those meetings to have something to say. He's a real believer in sharing things, sharing the journey. And what was awesome about that is that as soon as we started to share what we were doing, A, we heard from more people who had who wanted to contribute and be part of the conversation and shape where we went. And B, it inspired other people too, other funders, other, mm. you know, significant grantees along the way. And so now three years into this journey, we, you know, have, have made, you know, 
like $12 million in um, disability-inclusive grants last year. We have really radically changed a lot of our operations, everything from our grantee portal to our building to our communications um, to cultural competency on staff. Um, and so, you know, it's to, to me, it's about both the the dollars that we put out in the world and the leverage we have with our existing grantees, and it's also about how we operate as an employer, um, as an institution, as a social justice institution. So, I'm really happy about that. And the last thing I'll say is that we're now starting to look and carry this work, uh, you know, in in broader philanthropy and 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 try to figure out what it means to learn from others who've been funding in this space for a long time and galvanize and catalyze resources and learning opportunities uh, in our field, in our sector. So there's a lot going on, but um, the one thing I'll say is that there's no disability program area for This is really mainstreamed across the foundation, and, and that's something that um, I think is really powerful because no one can get an email inquiry from a disability activist and just forward it to the disability person. We all have to figure out where it belongs, where to send it, yeah, how to address exactly, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think that um, what you talked about is, is one of the things that I've respected about the Ford Foundation, that as you become aware of an issue, you also look internally to your operations, right? Mm-hmm. Because then it doesn't become this, uh, I, I remember being at some panel where Darren said, talking about the uh, returning citizens formerly incarcerated mm-hmm. and no check the box and then realizing, oh, we we don't really have a policy around that, right? Yeah. Um, and so you really have to say, if we're going to say this is a problem and we're going to use our dollars to address it, we're also going to use our, our people and our operations to address it as well. I so, think that's absolutely right. Yeah. And it shapes our staff. I mean, we have colleagues who are graduates uh, of the Bard Prison Initiative. And like there, you know, like we have colleagues, like I think that it changes the culture of the institution that you're in as well. And so, you know, living your values really means something when you um, incorporate them into your own. Uh, ways of working. Well, it's a proof of concept and a demonstration point. I mean, it's sort of saying this this does work, and we're, we're an example of how it does work as well. Yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. I think this conversation's fascinating, both in understanding the deep dive on disability that Ford has, but then in this sort of macro level, Cheryl's saying of figuring out, okay, when a foundation wants to evolve and explore an area, what does that look like? So you've talked about that this is not a siloed right. effort. This is more of a lens, if you will. Mm-hmm. It's a huge issue area to tackle. You talked a little <laughs> bit about just the population size that's impacted. And I can imagine 50 different ways you could get started on this work. How does somewhere like Ford decide a strategy for tackling such a social issue? You know, um, I'll speak directly to the disability issue first, which was, you know, we knew that um, we had to uh, have even more voices on the current voices we had on staff. And that meant bringing in a senior fellow who was kind of a luminary in the field, Judith Human, to, uh, to you know, think with us, alongside us. We also have a number of other consultants, Catherine Townsend and other folks who are, uh, you know, leaders in funding disability justice at other foundations work with us. And then, I mean, there's nothing more powerful than sitting with the organizations that have been doing the work for a long time Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and just listening to their priorities. So like those very early meetings were just listening sessions. Like we didn't have an agenda and we weren't asking pointed interviews. 
interview questions. Really, the questions were, what's important to you? What do you want philanthropy to know? You know, you know what what is like the biggest win you could have? What would you do with resources? Those are the kinds of questions. But we let those conversations meander and distilling the feedback from you know like a hundred or so of those conversations really guided where we decided to uh, invest in our own learning and in a more formal approach, which for us actually meant each program area at Ford has to make a certain dollar commitment in disability inclusive grants, meaning if you work on mass incarceration, you have to be able to say you've spent X dollars on uh, uh, on the issue that you were already funding in your strategy for that you know for uh, for remedies or um, analyses that focus on people with disabilities, and we all know there's like a pretty significant intersection between that issue and and disability justice. But really, all of the issues we work on have a disability angle to them, and so it was really about helping people figure out what that was and then figuring out organizations to fund. And some of them were organizations they already fund but having disability expertise, and some of them were new organizations that were led by people with disabilities with an exclusive focus on disability. And so are there other initiatives at Ford that are cross-cutting in the way that this, this disability focus is, or is this the first time you've kind of broken out of the silos to embed it throughout every aspect of the organization? There are a number of other really creative things we're doing. Um, you know, being a large institution with 10 offices outside of the U.S., you know, we, you know, we, we think about how we can effectively make impact in that way. But there, I think there's two specific areas I would, I would uh, point to. One is, um, you know, we really think that without a deep technology analysis, uh, many of our issues, like we won't be able to solve many of the issues we're taking on. So whether it's, again, mass incarceration, reproductive justice, or uh, creativity and free expression, which includes documentary, filmmaking, investigative journalism, and arts and culture, what we've done is we've embedded uh, colleagues uh, who are tech fellows for two years in, in many of our programs. And so their job is to bring the tech angle and the tech lens to that work. And can you imagine, like, in our arts and culture program, there's there's such a beautiful, robust world of artists who use technology and embrace technology, but, like, we need to understand what that means for our grantees. Um, and so these individuals, you know, and they're all so talented and creative, like, have deep expertise, they're effective communicators, they translate worlds, and they have their own independent projects. And I think that that's one way in which we've been able to take a topic and really understand that it belongs everywhere. Um, another one is our kind of billion-dollar build program, which is an investment in key organizations in the social justice infrastructure that are doing really important work that, that need to focus on organizational health and capacity building that also just need free resources and general operating support that's given over many years. So meaning they don't have to reapply for their grant every year and mm. focus on specific projects. We trust them enough and we're working with them on their organizational health enough to determine what their own priorities are. And so that crosses all programs as well. You know, every program we have has build grantees. So those are two examples of things where, you know, we understand that there doesn't need to be a standalone approach and that it's kind of every, everyone benefits from 
it being integrated into each of the uh, subject matter areas that we take on. Absolutely. That sounds great. You're listening to Dows and Change on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. We are talking with Naran Khan, who's the director of the president's office at the Ford Foundation. And I'm curious, Naran, if you could give us some examples. We love the sort of specific stories of something that, you know, a, a program or a practice that emerged from one of these intersections that might not have happened if there were deep silos. So what have you seen around asking your different departments and the different focus areas to have a disability lens? Has anything surprised you that's come out of that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, so, you know, we think about economic justice issues here at the foundation. And, you know, we were involved in organizations making the case for the Fight for 15 um, in New York State and in other places. And explain what the Fight for 15 is for listeners. $15 minimum wage. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, it's taking on a broader issue of, you know, what a living wage means here in the U.S. and what it takes to live and thrive and live a whole life as a worker in the U.S. And a lot of folks don't know that um, individuals with disabilities are exempted from from, you know, basic regulations related to the minimum wage. And in fact, they uh, are, many are employed in um, in programs that give them 50 cents an hour uh, through what, what are called sheltered workshops. Mm-hmm. And so there's like, you know, that's a really serious example of leaving people behind from what it means to live an independent life and have access to a, a living wage. And so I just don't think, you know, early on, like those are not the conversations that were happening. So that was like an area that was really obviously aligned with the work of the team um, thinking about those issues, but that, you know, just folks didn't really know about. And Naran, what was, what was Ford able to do about it? Well, we're investing in, um, in organizations that are making, that are kind of uh, bringing the issue of sheltered workshops uh, the policy issue alongside other kinds of minimum, like living wage advocacy. So they're just kind of bundled up in a way that doesn't silo mm-hmm. people with disabilities into a separate category of advocacy because fundamentally it's the same issue. Right. And so this is really about trying to make sure that as as people are addressing an issue, they're, they're really seeing the, the scope and the intersectionality of everything that's sure. involved with this. Absolutely. Or you think about, you know, access to voting and voter enfranchisement. And, Absolutely. and you think about people with disabilities and literal physical access to the polls. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, we invest in um, in organizing and and, you know, folks to have a voice in their local communities to, you know, like whether they're talking about housing laws or zoning or anything else. And people with disabilities like want to talk about transportation too, want to talk about housing too. So what does it mean when the places that you're meeting at are not accessible or you're not inviting a disability group to the table when advancing this issue and thinking about the case that you're trying to make to lawmakers or to other folks? Um, It's just thinking more holistically about uh, how to effectively bring not just disability voices to the table, because I think oftentimes we use the category disability and just say that's something else when really um, people with disabilities are part of all of these groups anyway. As we think about immigration and the implications of folks who are experiencing, who, who are you know being detained at the border, individuals who have disabilities, we're thinking about the public charge rule. There's just everything we work on has a disability lens. And if we recognize it, we can do what we're trying to do 
better and serve even more people. Yeah, and it's interesting that I've I've been at several presentations where they've talked about curb cuts, which were originally Mm -hmm. for, you know, people with wheelchairs, etc., and are, you know, profoundly useful for people with strollers yes. and people who, you know, have a hard time walking. Yep. It's something that's cane, not a, a, yep. Exactly. So it's the kind of New thing parents. that... Yeah, yeah. So if you do these, these um, uh, activities that can benefit some people with disabilities, odds are this is also making it better for other people as well, it's right? It's better for everyone. Yeah. I feel, I mean, I've just, it's been such a profoundly um, uh, energizing journey to, like, to learn about how effective this is for our broader work. It's it's incredible. Yeah, although I, I realize I voted at a little church in Philadelphia that um, mm-hmm. you have steps. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so, I absolutely. know. Well, churches are exempted from the ADA, really. Ah. You know, and so there, so there are these, like, fundamental problems that, you know, we're like, oh, well... No, no one spoke up. Well, no one spoke up because they weren't allowed into the room. Like, <laughs> right. let's think about right. if you can't physically room. get into the room, you cannot I have mean, a voice in the yeah. conversation. Exactly. We struggled with that with our own building. Like we had a building that was 50 years old that we were making significant renovations to. And I'm so glad that we embarked on this journey at the beginning of the renovation because it pretty profoundly impacted um, how that went down in our building. And I'm really proud of, of where we landed. We, we always have more work to do, but but uh, inclusivity and accessibility were really important part of our uh, building revitalization at our headquarters in New York. Excellent. Yeah. And well, as we talk about an aging population, you oh, know, goodness, it's, yes. it's sort of yeah. one of these issues where it's hard. It seems novel that Ford added disability as a lens across everything. And yet it's hard to have these conversations and not imagining all of these parts as sort of necessary totally components integrated. of the conversation. Yeah. I don't think of it as novel. I, I just think that like for a long time, like we were not, we were not doing what we needed to do and we still have a long way to go. But, uh, but I, you know, we're, it's always a game of catch up here because there, um, there are some very fundamental things that folks, you know, are, we are very set in our ways of working and our, vision of time or how long it takes to do something. Or when we structure fellowships, for example, we don't really think about, you know, like how, like how giving folks money might impact other sources of money that they're, that, yep. that, that are available, you know, made available to them through the government or other places. So it really does radically, once you start doing the work, um, you learn from the work and you can iterate like one of my, and I, I alluded to this before, but one of my you know personal things is like, well, Darren, when I talk to Darren, I'm like, Darren, we should wait till we've done the exploration before we talk about it. Or we should do a deep dive before we, you know, make these recommendations. And he's like, the only, like you will learn by doing it and you will get to the answer faster. And these issues are so urgent that we can't wait three or five years. Yeah. Like we need to start moving now. And I, I love that point because I think it's too easy to sort of, you know, especially at an academic, academic institution, sometimes to sort of say, let's get all the research, let's make sure we have it, let's make sure we, we can double check it, and then we'll act. And, you know, we, we do kind of like the sense of saying, let's learn by doing it. Yeah. You know? And we see a lot of these funders encouraging the entrepreneurs to learn by doing. Right. Like a right. top piece of advice <laughs> to entrepreneurs is get it out, get it in the market, see how the market responds, ideate, don't wait till it's perfect, you know. All these sayings, and then often the funding sits <laughs> right. in, you know, that the old way of thinking. And so exactly. it is great when, when the funding walks the talk. I imagine a lot of things align quite nicely. It's risky, but it's. I think it's important, and it's certainly something I've learned from this journey. That sounds excellent. Well, 
we we have gone through a wide-ranging discussion around this, mm-hmm. and um, we, we do have an end to the segment coming up. But I would like to hear just a little bit about the future of workers, because I think you're right. I have seen many things about the future of work. And it's really the future of workers. That's right. And I should say, it's one of our newest programmatic areas. So there's, you know, we have a new director coming in, Sarita Gupta, who we're very excited about joining us. But I will say... um, even just in the intentionality of the framing language has been really important because it centers the people. And we've historically done a lot of work in economic justice issues um, in uh, in thinking about just, you know, like who, everything from, you know, tipped workers to parental leave, you know, a lot of the different kind of policy issues. But I'm really excited that in this, in this, like, we're not even. This is not even a new issue. It's it's been around for a decade now and longer. Um, in the gig economy, what does it mean to have portable benefits? So, like, there that that particular team um, is going to have a lot of new, exciting priorities to share with the public in the coming months, especially. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, with new leadership. But I will say is that it's a really great combination of uh, issues we've historically invested in with an eye towards centering workers in uh, in all conversations, because it's very, you know, it is a very sexy topic. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Everyone's taking on. Yeah. Um, but it's something we need to figure out because too many people's health care and livelihoods and other things depend on where they work and in kind of precarious work and in, uh, you know, other ways of working. We're just not, things have not kept up. And is this mostly U.S. focused? That particular body of work, I think, will actually have a, a global a purview. I okay. mean, we, you know, I, I, I don't know um, which regional offices at Ford will focus on it, but certainly in the U.S., um, uh, the, 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 the U.S. director will be new, and I think it's really quite exciting. Excellent. We're coming to the end of our segment. Time flies when we're having fun. Um, so tell us what's next for the Ford Foundation. You guys are, you know, you're picking up these these concepts on the earlier end of and things. They seem very, it's, it's great because they're very edgy, which mm-hmm. is so very exciting. Exactly. And so so where, where else is your spidey sense alerting you to issue areas that are going to be important uh, to begin work? There's, I mean, there's so much out there. And the one thing I love about my colleagues is, you know, we always have to balance spending time with our current grantees and folks we know. But I think one of the worst pathologies of philanthropy is folks only talking to people they already fund in the worlds in which they already fund. Mm -hmm. And you, you do have to go to conferences and read articles on topics that don't relate to you. Like you, you really have to connect those dots. I mean, one thing I'm really proud of that we are, I think in year, you know, two or three of is, um, is a mission related investment. So really beyond the payout of $600 billion a year, what what are we doing the rest with the rest of our endowment? And I'm not talking about like staying away from like, you know, firearms, um, right, but right. I'm talking about like what can we invest in that's aligned with the rest of our mission. And you know, we've over the last two or three years, you know, we we uh, we got approval from our board to you know take a billion dollars uh, over the next ten years from our endowment and explore what that looks like, what the returns look like, and so I think that's just 
I'm really, I, I think a lot of other um, foundations have, have started thinking about this. I, I don't think any of our peer or, you know, foundations of our size have, have yet right. taken this on. It's pretty risky, but we're really excited to figure out how to put the rest of that money at work uh, to work. Um, and then the rest of it is really just like it falls on the responsibility of all of us to figure out, you know, like, what are we missing? Who are we not talking to? What's that one meeting that you took that, you know, like in the last couple of weeks that had nothing to do with anything that you actively fund and that was kind of out there, but we really have to take those chances. I think it's the responsibility of private philanthropy where there, you know, is a little bit of opacity and a different kind of accountability than in truly public spaces for us to go out on a limb and try new things and invest and seed new ideas. So yeah. I'm really excited and proud of that. Yeah, and it's interesting when you're talking about the PRIs, the, we had on somebody from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation mm, yes, a while ago. Friends. Yeah, <laughs> and, and they were, you know, we were talking, they said that they're a large health foundation, and we were talking about investments. They're like, we invest in housing. And mm -hmm. you're kind of like, housing? What does a housing have to do with health? And then it's become so obvious that they're, the you know, this is... Crisis. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. And so I think that part of what I I'd like about um, what you're talking about and what we're seeing from the Ford Foundation and others is that it's prompting innovation in, a, in very interesting ways. And we see a lot of that with our students as well, that they, they see impact investing and social entrepreneurship and public-private partnerships as a, as a source of, of innovation and optimism mm -hmm. rather than despair about problems that aren't going to be solved. I love that. That really resonates. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to have to call an end to this segment, unfortunately. We've been talking with... Naran Khan, director of the president's office at the Ford Foundation, about some of the, the innovative ways Ford is thinking about how to make the world a better place. And it's been a, a delightful conversation. So thank you so much, Naran. Thank you both so much as well. I really appreciated it. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.